Welcome back to Third Wave Urbanism. Happy New Year, everyone. Um, This is Katrina Johnston Zimmerman, and I'm coming to you today with an episode that features my good friend, Rebecca Greenwald. Uh, We're going to talk a lot about cities and culture. Um, She is in London and works with analyzing culture in cities and sort of going through the definition of uh, what that means, also what that means for cities in particular, um, why they should be paying attention to culture. And what happens when you don't? Uh, Really good conversation coming up for you. And I just want to say real quick, I think this is officially being called Series 2 of Third Wave Urbanism, I suppose. We had a really great run last year with some Next City featured content. We were partnering with them on some good stuff with their their contributors, their authors, um, and their articles in particular highlighting their work and a bunch of other good interviews. So please definitely check those out if you haven't already. But this year, um, we're going to sort of shift gears a little bit, focusing more on women in urbanism doing things sort of um, on the ground every day uh, in order to get a little bit of a varied perspective on the work that women are doing in cities around the world all the time. So I hope you like it. And um, without further ado, here is the interview with my friend Rebecca. Hey, Rebecca. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. All the way from London. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But you are obviously not British. You have found your way across the pond. And so I would like to start with your introduction. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing. And we know each other from New York City. Well, we originally, I included you in a piece. So I've kind of contributed some stuff to Metropolis magazine, both in print and online over the years, kind of looking at the areas where cities, culture and design intersect. And I think I got in touch with you because I was doing a piece on women's views on the 100th birthday of Jane Jacobs. Yes. Um, and then just have been urbanism out, nerding out ever since. And I pretty much consider you my urbanism encyclopedia. So <laughs> We should definitely start that online, urbanist Wikipedia. That would be awesome. So. Okay, so tell us how you found yourself in London and what exactly you're working on right now. Yeah, so I am kind of, I've been a super city kid since high school. I went, uh, I lived in New York City for high school and went to an arts high school um, and have lived in, I will just quickly rattle off, um, Cape Town, Berlin, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, San Francisco, Austin, and now London. Um, And have kind of, I think starting when I was in San Francisco, I kind of got interested in this idea. It was in 2011. You know, obviously tech has been a huge thing there for a while, but really kind of starting to see the acceleration of how growth in the city Mm -hmm. was impacting culture in the city and kind of venues closing, you know, small independent media closing, um, all of these things. And for the first time, kind of wondering, like, how do you prevent this from happening? Um, And then moved to Austin, Texas. because I fell in love with it. Um, I fell in love with the venues and I fell in love with the spaces and the people and what they were creating. And then lo and behold, the exact same thing happened Uh. as when I lived in San Francisco where, you know, tech growth was kind of rampant. And as a result, you know, we're seeing housing costs go up a ton, music venues, different spaces being threatened, a lot of people in the creative community kind of leaving. And then once again, asking myself, 
you know, what is the role that government plays in this and making sure that cities stay interesting, essentially, is what we're talking about when we talk about culture. Um, and so kind of wanting to explore that further, you know, I had worked with, um, I in a previous life, I did communications for architects and designers and urban planners and kind of wanted to drill a little bit deeper on my own. Um, this kind of convergence of culture in cities is not something that I see a lot of higher education institutions in the U.S. looking at. But in Europe, there's a lot of places that are researching this. So mm -hmm. I kind of came over to London to kind of do a mashup masters of cultural policy and cultural relations and urban sociology. That's awesome. So I'm glad you brought up the sociology part, too, because um, most people know I'm an anthropologist, and it's kind of a mixed bag of knowledge in different areas of urbanism, geography, and, and so on. But as an anthropologist, the definition of culture is kind of broader than I think a lot of the things that you're looking at in this like sort of semi-commercial context um, as well. You know, because culture is sort of everything that is around us. It could be anything from fashion to lingo, like slang. Um, and then in everything in your day-to-day -day life that you're seeing and spreading from person to person, which then sort of changes the larger culture over time. So I'm curious as to what your definition of culture is in this area and sort of what the definition of culture is for the research that can be done as well as the management on the part of the cities themselves. That's a lot. Sorry. <laughs> it's interesting because um, we'll talk a little bit later, but, you know, part of my some of my research in grad school focused on U.S. cities and how they're doing this. And it was kind of hard to use a standard definition because some of them look at and then we're seeing mm -hmm. this as far as where responsibility for culture falls within government. Right. So for some, actually, it's within economic development and has to do with creative industries growth, which is not the same as the creative class, which we will probably talk about <laughs> at some point, you know, creative industries as everything from, you know, architecture, design, music, fashion, visual art, kind of mm -hmm. this suite um, that falls within that. And then kind of culture itself can be something broader, too. I mean, it's funny, because sometimes I think of like food as culture. But usually when we're talking about oh, the no, culture for sure. in creative sector, those are kind of the things that we're looking at that we think of as kind of traditional creative disciplines. But then the way that's handled within cities changes. Um, yeah. And kind of varies from city to city and place to place their understanding of it. Um, and kind of a definition, another definition or glossary term to think of from the outset is the idea of cultural infrastructure. So the spaces in which culture happens. And we kind of think about that as along the kind of creative supply chain in cities, right? So it's, you know, both where things are created, artist studio space, um, mm -hmm. rehearsal space, recording space, to obviously, you know, performance venues, theaters, museums, galleries, kind of all the places, and then where creatives are able to live. So kind of defining cultural infrastructure as the spaces that creative people kind of live, work, and perform or display in. Yes. And so there's a little bit of a difference in the type of person or the type of activity that's going on, because I think some people also think of these things as potentially even unnecessary or sort of extra goodies, yeah. <laughs> depending on who you are. I mean, obviously, unless that's like the reputation for the place where you go to that place for a specific cultural offering. But yeah, yeah I mean, 
the people who are performing at these events and or doing this different kind of uh, cultural activity, they're sort of a different kind of person in society because of what they do. So how does a city kind of rectify paying attention to them, making sure that they're given their due diligence and valued as a contribution to that city's overall cultural offerings? One of the biggest interesting reasons that I'm kind of interested in this, both, you know, culture and I'm also really interested in travel and tourism, they tend to be treated, especially in the U.S., as these kind of like fluffy, nice to have things. But there's real economic mm. weight to these things. You know, I'm I mean, I should have a figure in front of me. But, you know, if you think about events like South by Southwest, which is, you know, a music, film and technology conference, I mean, that contributes hundreds of millions of dollars every year to the city of Austin. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, there's both direct contributions in terms of like when we talk about culture in cities and measuring the economic value of culture in cities, both, you know, direct contribution, um, ticket sales, album sales, et cetera, but then Mm -hmm. also what we call these like spillover effects, right? So say someone goes to a music show, they're also probably going to have dinner before, maybe they're going to go somewhere after, and these kind of wider ripple out effects on the economy. It's actually, it's not insignificant. It's actually really significant. And in terms of bringing people in and bringing people out at kind of different kinds of times. So, you know, I always think about how, you know, I lived in Austin before and in Texas, there's kind of this ongoing debate of, you know, tax credits for the film industry and like it being Mm. labeled by a certain political party as like a Hollywood tax, quote unquote. But, you know, when you have an active film sector in Austin, it brings jobs, both temporary and permanent. It kind of has kind of a wider effect. It's not really this fluffy thing. It's actually a really important part of their economy and how the city is perceived and how much, you know, Mm -hmm. investment is seen in it and all these other things that kind of get into the more traditional arguments that folks like Richard Florida make. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I I definitely reject the idea that this is fluffy, (laughs) you know, and we see what happens to cities when they're not interesting you know fewer businesses want to locate there fewer people want to go there and that has a negative economic impact so this is kind of like a double-edged sword though too in that sense because it's almost unavoidable to talk about the uh, culture of a place without talking about creativity and creative class um, like you said but you know cities really want this because it attracts people and I hear people talking about how they can replicate, you know, like the South by Southwest effect in their city and make something that's very similar, although it has to stand out because, uh, you know, it's got to be a different cultural offering in that sense. So so how do you do something that is similar but culturally unique enough that brings somebody to your city? And then where does that lead cities in terms of, you know, selling out or compromising on values or even manufacturing culture? It just seems really complicated. (laughs) It is really complicated. And I think it's really interesting because when they and I guess that also kind of brings up the relationship between like tech and creativity and what happens, you know, um, like a city like Lisbon is a city that has just amazing inherent culture and it's become a really attractive destination as a result. And I think now the city government is kind of seeing that and trying to magnify it. So they have brought this conference called Web Summit, which is um, kind of like a EU equivalent of South by Southwest. But then Hmm. what happens to that? Then this kind of vicious cycle starts where, you know, affordability starts to increase. And then the people who actually made that place an interesting creative place start to have to be 
you know, displaced and moved out and it feels less authentic than what was happening mm-hmm. originally. Um, yeah, it kind of does become the same thing that we're seeing with the High Line, where it becomes this kind of like copy paste approach to yeah. urban planning and development. Um, but it is, I mean, cities are constantly learning from each other. And as we might touch on, you know, there are these networks for cities, especially related to culture, just like there are networks like C40 and 100 Resilient Cities for Climate Change. There's networks like, you know, we'll discuss um, the World Cities Culture Forum, which is put on by the company I work for, which is a cultural and creative industries consulting firm called BOP. Um, so there's, you know, the World Cities Culture Forum, which convenes the cultural affairs departments from world cities. Um, you know, there's UNESCO has a creative cities network with, I think, like 170 cities around the world. Wow. That one is organized by disciplines. So cities apply to be, you know, a city of music or a city of literature, mm. and then they're kind of convened into subtracts based on this. Um, you know, there's a network for cultural districts around the world. Um, United Cities and local governments, UCLG also has a culture program as well. So there's kind of these cities are actively learning from each other as well and trying to learn best practices and both how can they learn from what other cities are doing, but how can they kind of apply them in a way that's locally contextually relevant? Yeah. And I think that's really the point of it is how do you bolster what already exists that maybe is underappreciated or even unknown that does make you stand out, but then still also th- – that is also still authentic and retains the original sort of culture that was um, already there regardless of its popularity. And I think that becomes a really important lesson too, especially for this category of like quote-unquote world cities is, you know, it's interesting how different cities face such different challenges related to culture. Um, you know, I met someone from St. Louis at a conference earlier this year and their challenge is – how do they get creatives to their city? You know, they have like beautiful theaters and amazing spaces, but there actually aren't that many young people engaging in the creative community there. So how do you create that? Because you want to draw in both certain kinds of businesses and tourists, you know, versus what cities like New York and Austin and London are facing, which is how do you keep what you already have? Um, So it becomes very different for very different, depending on the size of the city and that sort of thing. Well, and so there's also this difference between U.S. cities and places, for instance, say in Europe, where, you know, a lot of the cultural offerings or things to celebrate in that place there have a grounding in a greater level of history. And I think in the United States, it's interesting because our history is a much different context. So some of these cultural offerings are far more recent, maybe, like I'm just sort of spitballing here, or some of them may not be considered what's culturally interesting or even authentic, again, going back to, you know, um, authenticity of place. And then there's sort of the connection between the different places in the world, you know, what we can learn from Europe or elsewhere in the world, how they can learn from us. So how do you grapple with those differences and what the United States can do with its sort of more recent uh, history? Yeah, it is interesting because I was, um, you know, when we talk about culture and creativity in the U.S., Richard Florida has pretty much become synonymous with creativity in U.S. cities. But Mm -hmm. actually, his approach is not really grounded in cultural policy per se. He's not actually a cultural policy expert as far as like, how do you create environments that are 
best suited to creative people. It's kind of more about these spillover effects I was discussing earlier. Um, mm-hmm. And his work is, you know, relatively recent within the last 20 years or so. In Europe, really since the 1980s, cities have been kind of in a modern sense, looking at what is the role of creativity. You know, um, Mm -hmm. there's a fellow called Charles Landry, who's been kind of a leading academic in this space since the 1980s. And in the 1980s is when the European Capital of Culture program started, which is this idea where different European countries kind of bid and compete and they award each year a different city or sometimes two cities every year um, that are kind of European capitals of culture. And these cities tend to kind of make big cultural investments in kind of Mm -hmm. building new spaces and developing a whole suite of programs and events around it and have definitely a lot of these cities have kind of seen an uptick in tourism. You know, it's every city that you know in Europe, it's Athens, Amsterdam, Berlin, Paris, Glasgow. And actually for a lot of cities like Glasgow, it was a turning point for them in terms of their perception externally as being kind of cultural and creative capitals. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, Bristol was one in the UK. And I think while they had that label, they redid a lot of their public spaces because of it, for instance. Yeah. So in the UK, um, this... 2017 was a city called Hull that kind of has really tried to use this designation to put itself on the map um, to kind of get people both within the UK and then, you know, throughout Europe to see it as a destination. Um, And then, you know, as a result of that or for these programs, you kind of have to bring different cultural actors together in the city to pull off something like this, kind of like with mm-hmm. the Olympics, you know, it really is like a cross-sectoral effort. And hopefully the mechanisms that are developed to pull something like that off stay in place after the fact. And there's kind of, you know, better links between government and the creative sector and the business community that can kind of continue after these programs end. And actually an interesting thing that's going on in London right now is they just announced their first borough of culture. So what does it mean to have a specific neighborhood or area that for that year, you know, gets, you know, the city government invests some funding, local bodies raise their own funding, and then they are kind of highlighted for that year as an interesting destination within the city to go to for culture. Wow. That's so interesting because I think um, New York City was doing the same thing with its boroughs, specifically with tourism. So rather than bringing everybody to Manhattan, uh, they were advertising the sort of like unique culture in each of the boroughs, like Queens and the Bronx and so forth, um, to sort of spread people out in that sense. Yeah. And this is an interesting question. You know, I don't have the answers to it, but it's something I'm thinking about a lot. And a lot of people in this space are thinking about a lot is that how can we link you know, cultural agendas with equitable agendas in cities and make sure that, you know, culture isn't just something that's in big institutions in the center of cities, but that, you know, reaches all kinds of people, people who might not normally go to those kinds of spaces. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's efforts going on in London to kind of bring different performances or have the institutions that are in the center of the city actually bring culture to high streets, which are what we call the main streets and neighborhoods right. in London, um, <laughs> throughout the city. And what does it mean for culture to be in every nook and cranny of a city, too? But also not in a way that is degrading or in a way that is too, you know... 
ideally in a way that is opening up access and reducing barriers, yeah. you know, because there's a reality that there is a perceived elitism to a lot of institutions. And it's actually been interesting to see on social media, this whole kind of controversy around the Metropolitan Museum of Art now is going to start charging, I think, $25 right. for non-New Yorkers. And what does that mean for, you know, who then gets to go to a space like that versus when a space is free? Agreed. And then there's also, you know, continuing on the theme of equity in this space when we talk about creative industries as well is that you know if cities are trying to grow their cultural sectors or their creative sectors and their creative industries how are they making sure that those opportunities are opening up to all kinds of folks right i know this is something that um so detroit is a unesco city of design and you know detroit is doing a lot right now to position itself around design but i know something that the people who are stewarding that designation are thinking a lot about is that how do we make sure that you know, all kinds of people are able to be positioned for those kinds of jobs for a city that is majority Mm non-white in a creative discipline that is majority white. (laughs) How do you make sure through education, through skills development, through whatever, that you're opening up those opportunities to the widest possible cross-section of the community? Absolutely. I kind of feel like this sounds like a more comprehensive or holistic look at the creative class subject, uh, which also sounds like you are probably working on the, you know, sooner than the release of his most recent book, for instance. But yeah, I mean, we talked about this on a previous episode about his second book and the follow up to this creative class idea. And really, for me, also, when I was in grad school, probably around the same time you were working on these things around like 2011. It was already the case that it just seemed too limiting, like it seemed too one-sided or simplistic. And it wasn't actually focusing on, you know, the the cultural authenticity whatsoever. Yeah, I think there's been a tendency with that approach. And because that approach in his book and whatever have gained traction so wildly, this idea of seeing culture as a means to an end, um, you know, right. um you should invest in culture because you will be able to attract certain kinds of companies and people. Yeah. But then now we're seeing this spiral out effect is, you know, what happens when, you know, Austin is like a poster child for that kind of model of development. But then what happens, you know, there was a report that came out a couple of years ago that actually musicians can't afford to live in Austin anymore. Right. They're being priced out. And what happens when, you know, a city positions itself as, the live music capital of the world, but then the music infrastructure is drying up. Um, and this is something that the city is massively grappling with. I mean, like venues, there's a kind of campaign. So Red River is a popular, it's a street with a lot of music venues that's pretty close to downtown and it's a total hotbed during South by Southwest. It's um, And that area and those music venues have made the city what it is, but then you know, new hotels come in that want to be near that, but then there's issues of noise complaints and Mm. it's kind of this spiral out effect that, you know, so it becomes this really tricky situation where it's funny that culture, especially in the U.S., because I just think there is less of an understanding of the economic value, which is ironic because culture is one of America's biggest exports. Um, <laughs> if you think about how much film and music and, you know, the design products, we export those massively. And it's, right. it's funny that there's not the same acknowledgement of its value. But, you know, especially in the U.S., it's constantly having to make that external case, whereas 
you know, should it have to? Um, mm-hmm. Culture is what makes life interesting without sounding cheesy. It's kind of what gives life color. <laughs> like a lot of life would be black and white. We know what it's like to be in cities that don't have a lot of culture or have even lost their culture. And I'm sure right. like you and anyone listening to this can think of s- probably five places at the top of your head that have closed in your city and what that feels like and then what it means to not have those spaces they're just not very interesting places to be honest totally okay so how do we fix this so i know you work for this consulting company now um and you all just released this incredibly robust report on the subject not to mention your own personal dissertation but what sort of examples are there where cities have successfully managed to both, you know, avoid the pitfalls, but also celebrate their culture and bring people in successfully? So this report that the World Cities Culture Forum put out in 2017, called it's part of an ongoing initiative to look at this topic called Making Space for Culture that kind of specifically looks at this challenge of preserving and creating cultural space opportunities in the midst of the global affordability crisis. Um, And there's kind of three main lenses through which the report looks at this. So those three areas are kind of like funding and finance. How do we create capital, you know, make sure there's investment, also make sure that we can keep rents stable. Yeah. So there's um, a project in San Francisco, it's called the Community Arts Stabilization Trust. And there you know, through foundation funding and through individual funding, trying to purchase property in San Francisco so that they can do a lease-to-own model where they're able to offer arts organizations below market rate rents. Nice. In a city where, you know, it kind of goes without saying uh, the ways that San Francisco's rent is increasing. Um, Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, the second category we talk about is planning and policy. And how do we start to get, how do we kind of start to bridge the divide between planners and developers and the creative community, right? Uh So, you know, how do planners and developers try to better understand, you know, I was in at a conference earlier this year and there was a real estate developer telling about how he's been trying to get his company to move culture rather from a cost side to a value side, you know, and this Ah. kind of idea of making space for culture within new developments because it's more likely that it's going to be a place that people actually want to go and that feels good. Um, And then, you know, how do creatives insert themselves in the planning process more and get their voices heard and that sort of thing. Um, So that's kind of a second category. And then the third category we talk about is space development and provision Um, and kind of designating areas and kind of facilitating, you know, some of that has to do with Mm. government-owned spaces that are then able to be used for creative and cultural purposes. Um, And kind of in some cases, there's a couple of examples in – I believe Madrid and Taipei, where then those spaces were able to be used by local artists and the local community to come up with ways that they want to use them and how they those fit into kind of filling local creative needs. Right. <laughs> like having agency over your role in the city. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's another movement also towards just measuring and capturing mm. existing cultural space, because I think sometimes it's been hard to advocate to government why these things are important when you don't have in front of you 
information on the loss of enclosure of venues and spaces. And now there's kind of a move to make sure that we're, you know, capturing data and collecting metrics on cultural spaces in cities. But also the kind of value that is not necessarily economically, uh, you know, reliant or whatever. So not necessarily just spaces that are money makers, but also places that have a real value for your everyday life in a city, like your quality of life, if you want to call it that, um, for the people living there, for tourists and, and what have you. So I guess it's just sort of a capture of not only the data of what exists, why it's important, how it impacts the city, but also what it does to somebody's day-to-day life in particular. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there are different ways of looking at that. So I think there, I think you brought up two really good points, which is one, just collecting information. And there's a project that Berlin launched earlier this year called the Creative Footprint, where they've now tracked, you know, every single music space in the city and kind of given it a score on a series of kind of metrics and capturing that because then you can see five years from now how has that changed how does that relate to new real estate development that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and then the second part of what you're saying is that also being able to kind of make this wider case for why it's important and things like you know community and social cohesion and you know perception and you know what we've touched on a little bit like city the city's brand and that sort Mm -hmm. of thing and these kind of wider impacts that cities kind of need to be able to articulate why these things are important when, you know, budgets are being cut left and right. right yes, things. yes. Why they need to put time and energy towards something like this in particular, as opposed to, you know, jobs, 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 jobs. <laughs> yeah. And then um, the importance of cross-sector coalitions and bringing together those actors, right, from industry, from government, and not just from cultural and economic development departments. Um, We released another report in the fall that was looking at actually what is the role of culture in urban climate change efforts um, right, and sustainability issues and that sort of thing. And actually public health, because we, you know, there's a major case to be made for the role of culture in both mental well-being, physical well-being, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I heard that. London just opened their first office or the first ever office anywhere um, to take a look at isolation in cities in yeah, particular. I just saw that yesterday. Wow. Yes. And it's, and it's my immediate thought was, yeah, culture has a huge role to play in that. I mean, I feel like that's one of the reasons that we consume culture and we participate in culture is to be understood, you know, and to feel a part of something that's larger than ourselves. It's kind of almost like a religious experience. That's incredible. Uh, I I know you said you didn't want that to sound cheesy, but I love the way that you put that. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. But also, I guess the other conversation is, what is culture when the world is so global? And, you know, how do you capture what is there and celebrate it in a way that is unique and authentic when otherwise you could say that there's, like, you know, globalization of culture in a way where we're all just kind of mixing together uh, in urban centers at, at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a, another big argument for cities being sure to hold on to what they've got. There's this article that I tell people about all the time, and I don't know if you read it. It was by, I was, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, Kyle Cheka. It was for The Verge. It was called Welcome to Airspace. And it was about right. this idea how this like 
certain kind of homogenized urban creative a class aesthetic you could be anywhere and it's indistinguishable where you are or what yeah. you know is referred to as like non-places and culture authentic <sighs> culture and investing in local culture is kind of the antidote to that i mean that's what makes austin austin or lisbon lisbon and that's what's so scary when that gets lost right you know we know mm-hmm. you know austin starting to look different berlin starting to look different san francisco is certainly starting to look different and unfortunately once you lose it it's harder to kind of reinvigorate and replicate i mean actually something that i think is so interesting in america is that even as this kind of like second tier of cities become saturated we're seeing actually small cities starting to do really interesting things and kind of like Mm -hmm. develop really interesting creative communities like i've heard about in omaha or you know i have friends who run this amazing design studio in saint augustine and that sort of thing and then them kind of seeing what that means for them. I mean, I'm, that's a little bit of a tangent from your original question, but you know, yes, it's completely culture is completely critical. Otherwise, cities would almost all look the same. But it, it it's kind of interesting. I mean, there is a challenge with culture in relation to that too, as kind of you know, music festivals that are in different places start to almost have the same lineups from place right. to place <laughs> and that sort of thing. And so, how do I guess it kind of goes back to that city learning idea of how do cities glean best practices, but then how do they make sure to do it in a way that is makes sense locally? So instruction to cities, be yourself. <laughs> be yourself, learn from other cities, but don't necessarily do a copy-paste approach. And I think that's another thing that's actually really interesting about these city networks, um, especially the one that UNESCO runs, is... It's kind of funny, like you should we shouldn't be expecting small cities to be taking all only ideas from New York and London, right? Like one thing that I'm so mm-hmm. interested by, there's a man who I interviewed for my dissertation who is from Iowa City, which is a UNESCO city of literature. And he, through that, is able to learn through cities that are actually more his size, like, you know, Edinburgh and that sort of thing. And I think actually the way kind of second tier cities, I think it's actually, I hope to see more U.S. cities, especially, especially since the U.S. is no longer a part of UNESCO, (laughs) um, which, but there is this whole suite of UNESCO creative cities from the U.S. And I, I hope more U.S. cities kind of realize these dual benefits of both being able to learn from and bounce ideas from and express, you know, both common challenges and opportunities with cities around the world. You know, Detroit is in the other cities of design or cities in Mexico, cities in China, cities in Korea. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean for those opportunities to have both for what they can learn and apply locally, again, in a contextually relevant way, but also what does that mean from a soft power perspective right now? And, um, Another way that kind of cities are asserting themselves on an international stage, but this time in a cultural way. So it it definitely goes along with this idea of, you know, city leadership taking the helm and actually leading the way in all these different issues that we're facing right now, like climate change and so forth. You know, cities are the ones that are coming together to share ideas, best practices, challenges, and really take the charge as opposed to even um, like the national leadership that they're within, which is weird. Um, But (laughs) yeah, this is another element of that, which I think is great. You know, if it's going to happen, if this is going to be one of the better ways for this to happen, um, may as well also happen with culture and, and have our cities lead that. 
But it's an opportunity for hope, not getting too much into the wider political sphere. But, you know, some of the conversations that I had about with U.S. cities about how they're participating in these networks and how it's taken on this renewed significance and even things like sister cities, which is mm. seen as this really dated thing in the U.S., <laughs> a lot of cities now are actually taking a second look at these programs that they've had to do forever because sister cities is inherently you know, a what we call a bilateral, it's a city to city, as opposed to, you know, a network, which is a city with a bunch of other cities, mm-hmm. um, kind of taking a second look at those relationships and saying, actually, these are really important relationships right now. And are there kind of cool and interesting things we can do with that? You know, I think Providence is in has sister city relationships with, um, you know, cities in Mexico and in China, and they're finding really interesting ways to kind of provide both cultural exchange, bringing exhibitions and academic programs between those places, but also, you know, creating creative industries based opportunities and offering work placements for, you know, RISD, Rhode Island School of Design students in other countries and vice versa. So there's kind of interesting ways that they're doing stuff with that. I actually did really think that that program was sort of useless. (laughs) No, it's been, it's so interesting. The number of people that I spoke to for this project that have, you know, not getting too much into the greater political context, but there's places that our positive relationship with in the past was a no brainer, you know, actually you need to invest in and culture is such a great mechanism for doing that because it's, positive and people get it in a way that touches their heart and not just their mind and I just it's funny I left my dissertation research actually just feeling so moved as far as how important this is and that this isn't just something for cities like New York and LA you know this is Santa Fe and Iowa City and Seattle and yeah so I, I hope more cities realize that this might be an interesting thing for them to look at and invest in as well that's amazing So this is obviously this is a passion for you and you found yourself in a place where you can do this as a career. Um, What sort of things are you hoping to do with these, you know, like positive feelings on on culture connections and cities and so forth? What are you looking forward to? I definitely want to find a way, you know, we talked about this idea of equity and I don't know what city is doing this well yet or I can't exactly say you know I want to learn more about how we open those opportunities up more Mm -hmm. so that not just people who might already be predisposed to have those opportunities can if they want to pursue you know careers in the creative industries have the education and the training and what is the role of the city in that um I think also I think cities around the world share so many interesting common challenges. You know, if you look at post-industrial cities in the UK and the way they're now trying to use culture, I just think there is such an analogy with the opportunities for post-industrial cities in the US. And, you know, I hope cities continue to work with each other and to learn from each other. That's why I think the city levels in so many ways so much more capable right now than the nation level <laughs> is the ability to form connections and to learn. So I I will be curious to see how that continues to develop and grow. Um, I think there's really exciting stuff. I am continuing to track, you know, what is happening in U.S. cities at the moment. Um, 
And like I said, in unexpected cities, like I'm pretty sure that Little Rock, Arkansas has developed a creative corridor. And I think dispelling the idea that this is something for, but like that this is just something for like the New York's and LA's and DC's, but actually that this is something that all kinds of cities across the US and all kinds of places that you wouldn't expect. Um, I am excited to see how those cities continue to understand the importance of culture and creativity and continue it to invest in and support it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's necessary, right? The, a lot of the middle cities are going to get the overflow from the larger cities that kind of are at their sort of peak urbanist um, you know, capacity. So this is going to kind of move from the middle cities to the smaller cities, I think. So I think they're really smart to be digging into a lot of this now. And that these cities, you know, you did an Amazon HQ2 episode, but they're, (laughs) you know, these cities don't want to see themselves as second tier anymore. They want to compete with New York and San Francisco. And they understand that, you know, cultural amenities are important to people. And it's, it's not just important to people. It's important for quality of life. It's important for so many things. And I think we're just starting to see the ways that they're trying to starting to develop that. So I'm excited to continue to track what those cities are doing. Love it. Well, thank you, Rebecca, for everything. Thank you. Um, And also, of course, for the work that you're doing. You know, that's super important. I'm so glad, you know, your passion is being applied to something that is so important. Yes. And I I look forward to culture touching more areas in the city and more departments within within cities working together on this because... It's super important. And now more than ever, both to individuals and cities and to the world. Not, yeah. So I will leave it at that. (laughs) Okay. Perfect. If you're interested in learning more about cities and culture and digging into some of those details that Rebecca touched on as well, um, definitely head over to Next City where Rebecca just authored a a recent article summarizing all of that along with one of her colleagues. And otherwise, stay tuned for more. Thanks for listening, everybody.